Before we look at the passage, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I don't think I have. I'm actually going to do a service sheet exegesis. So I just want you to look at the, the service sheet and notice the two songs that we sang. The, the song two, two times ago was In Christ Alone. If you look at the, uh, that those are Hymn of Trust. We sang that uh, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. And then we just sang with let us love and sing in wonder uh, that he has hushed the law's loud thunder. Justice smiles and asks no more. So these are things that we sing because of the work of Jesus. Again, back to in Christ alone, we, um, we sang about how he stands in victory since curse has lost its grip on me. And then with let, let us love and sing in wonder, we sang that the Lord our strong salvation holds in view the conqueror's crown. So these are things that we sing. We sing about the cross of Jesus. We sing about him bearing our punishment. And we sing about in bearing our punishment how he will be ultimately vindicated and victorious over sin and death. So this is what we sing. Now somebody could say, ah, but this is a contemporary hymn with uh, Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend. Or it's just a you know, more recent post-Reformation hymn with the words by John Newton. But that's why I was so pleased, and we did not coordinate this, but I was so pleased that uh, Ted Wanger would have in the worship guide thoughts on the crucifixion from the early church figure Eusebius of Caesarea, where Eusebius says, thus, this is on your worship guide, this, under the second heading, thoughts on the crucifixion, thus the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world became a curse on our behalf. And the Lamb of God not only did this, but was chastised on our behalf and suffered a penalty he did not owe, but which we owed because of the multitude of our sins. And so he became the cause of the forgiveness of our sins. How did he do this? Because he received death for us and transferred to himself the scourging, the insults, and the dishonor which were due to us and drew upon himself the appointed curse, being made a curse for us. And I submit to you, the church of the Lord Jesus has always held that Christ was punished for our sins, precisely because of passages in the Bible, like Isaiah chapter 53, that I'm about to read, and also, Lord willing, what we'll look at in 1 Peter chapter 2 next week, where Peter reflects on this passage. So it's a two-part mini-series here in, uh, in the bleak midwinter uh, on the cross of Christ. This week we're looking at Isaiah 53 and next week 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, so before we uh, read the passage, beginning with, uh, as I said, verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 52, just to set the context, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
that our great and good Lord Jesus, the Lord of our salvation, held in view the conqueror's crown, that uh, he gave himself gladly for our salvation, and that he is triumphant over sin and death. We pray that you would help me proclaim clearly and boldly the truth of the gospel that Christ was punished for our sins so that we are not punished but set free. And we pray that you would draw us into great faith in that Lord Jesus, and we ask it for his great name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, again, as I said, Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Well, this passage is a familiar one, isn't it? It's uh, one that we may uh, know some of. If uh, you're visiting tonight, welcome. It is nice to have you. You may not know the passage that well because you just don't go to church. But even if you don't go to church, you may pop into some kind of classical music Christmas concert and hear uh, something like Handel's Messiah. All we, I'm not going to sing it for you, don't worry. But all we like sheep have gone astray. It's uh, one of these oratorios or whatever it's called. Um, so it's a familiar passage, isn't it? But it's precisely because it's a familiar passage that it's easy to forget or even not recognize in the first place how astonishing this passage is. The figure that Isaiah presents is a surprising one. We are told as far back in uh, chapter 52, verse 14, as many were astonished at you. The one who's called the servant in verse 13 is a surprising figure. Kings shut their mouths because of him, we see in verse 15. More forcefully still in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Isaiah asked questioningly in chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed what they heard from us? The answer may well be not many. And we can consider the astonishment that we ought to have in the face of this figure under four headings. There's the servant's astonishing humiliation, his astonishing innocence, there's an astonishing substitution, but finally, there's an astonishing vindication. So astonishing humiliation, innocence, substitution, and vindication. Well, first, let's consider the, the servant's astonishing humiliation. His appearance provokes astonishment, chapter 52, verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So this, uh, just to put it bluntly, the, the servant here is a hideous sight, an unattractive appearance. Chapter 53, verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. But this man's disgrace extends beyond his physical appearance. Chapter 53, verse 3. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and is one from whom mid hide their faces he was despised and he's not he's not just an outcast he seems unworthy of our compassion he was despised and we esteemed him not in fact his situation is so bleak that the only conclusion that we can draw isaiah says is that well we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted so his situation is desperate. Verse 5, he's wounded, he's crushed, he's beaten or whipped. The, the language there uh, with his stripes, it's a visual picture either of his bruises from beating or of lacerations from being whipped. And the description of humiliation continues. Verse 7, 
He's oppressed. He's afflicted. Verse 8. He's taken away by oppression and judgment. He's cut off out of the land of the living. And his humiliation seems utterly complete in his death. They, they made, we just read in verse 9, his grave with the wicked. So this servant suffers an astonishing humiliation. An astonishing humiliation. But let me just ask you something. Why should it be so astonishing? I mean, is it really that unbelievable that somebody should be punished for a crime? After all, in the Old Testament, God's people believed that crimes were worthy of punishment and that some crimes were worthy of capital punishment, that is, the death penalty. We see this in Numbers 35, 16. The murderer shall be put to death. Now, you may personally be against the death penalty. You may think that no criminal wrongdoing should ever be punished by taking someone's life. But I think that we can all agree that there are crimes that cry out for punishment, even very severe treatment. But why, why should this message about the servant's humiliation be as astonishing as it is? Is there something about this particular case that makes his treatment so shocking? Well, Isaiah makes clear why it is that people, in, he can ask in verse 1, who's believed our message? It's because the person being punished is innocent. So we see in Isaiah the servant's astonishing innocence. Verse 9 tells us that he had, if you look down at verse 9, right at the end of the verse, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now saying that he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth is a way of saying that this man did not deserve the death penalty. That he'd not committed a capital crime. He's not like the murderer in Numbers chapter 35. On the contrary, he had done no violence. And so his innocence is astonishing in the face of his utter humiliation, of his bearing an inexplicably gruesome punishment. So an innocent man is being Punished. Indeed, he's being executed. Right? He, he's taken away. They put him with the wicked in his death. So, isn't this a wrongful execution? Should, should we perhaps speak against this great injustice? No. Not at all. Isaiah says. Well, why? Because the text makes clear this innocent person who is being punished is an astonishing substitute. There's an astonishing substitution taking place. So for whose crimes is he being committed? Is he being punished if they're not his own crimes? 
Let's get that, let's get that clear. Surely Isaiah says in verse 53, in chapter 53, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now to say that somebody's a substitute is just a fancy way of saying that one person takes the place of another. And Isaiah makes clear that this suffering servant takes the place of his people. Verses 4 and 5 make the substitution very clear. Look at the interplay, or just hear it if you don't have a Bible with you. Listen and or look at the interplay of he and our, or we, in verses 4 and 5. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. He was beaten, but we are healed. The Lord, Isaiah says in verse 6, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, verse 8, he was stricken for, our for the transgression of his people. The servant, it is astonishing, substitute. And what's the crime? The crime is verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So the picture here of the people being sheep is not the picture that we see in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Nor is it the joyful, confident sheep of Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. No, here in Isaiah 53, the sheep are wayward. They are wandering. And what Isaiah tells us is that because the sheep wander, the servant suffers. Isaiah is saying an innocent man was tortured in your place because of what you've done. It's not because of somebody else. It's because of you. And notice, too, that the picture of wrongdoing in Isaiah 53 is not breaking God's law, but leaving it altogether. Sin is just as much rule-making. I'm going to live my own way as it is rule-breaking. And the astonishing news to God's people in Isaiah 53 is you don't pay for your sin. The servant does. You're not crushed for your iniquities. The servant is. And this substitution is astonishing. And it's so astonishing that some have asked whether or not it could possibly be immoral. Perhaps it's simply wrong to allow someone to suffer for the wrongdoing of another person. Well, let's confront the question directly. Is this astonishing substitution unjust? Isaiah says it's not. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is the Lord, has put him 
to grieve. God has decided to punish the servant in the place of his people. They deserve the punishment, but God places it on the servant instead. And God does it, so it must be just. But let's not overlook a crucial element to the substitution. The servant receives the punishment willingly. It's not as though God forces the servant to take the punishment for the people. On the contrary, the servant willingly does the work. Verse 12. The servant poured out his soul to death. He died willingly of his own free will for his people. No wonder then that Isaiah tells us in verse 7 that the servant offers no defense. That he is silent. It's because in part he is willing. He's totally innocent. He has no need to give his defense. Instead, he's willing to die for the wrongdoing of God's people. Also notice in verse 7 where it says that he's silent. Notice that, that we have another sheep, right? We're sheep that got astray, but the servant is also compared to a sheep. But whereas God's people are wandering and faithless sheep, he is not. He is instead a willing sacrifice for sin, an offering for sin. That's the language of verse 10. So this servant is like the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12, who is killed as a substitution for the firstborn son. He's the guilt offering of Leviticus chapters 5 through 7. So God's people are sheep who've gone astray, but the servant is a willing sacrificial lamb who's crushed under the full weight of God's agonizing wrath. And he suffers and dies in order, verse 11, to make many to be accounted righteous. So he gets our iniquities. We get his righteousness. Notice, let's be very clear, the strict accounting in God's court of law as we see in verses 11 and 12. He causes many to be accounted righteous. Verse 12, he is numbered with the transgressions. And again, in verse 12, he makes intercession for transgressors. The servant is the advocate in court, pleading a case on behalf of God's people. And, he, and as well as the astonishing substitute, who bears the punishment for their sin. So Isaiah's picture is we the sheep bring our grief, sorrows, transgressions, wanderings, and iniquity, and he brings his peace, healing, righteousness, and innocence. And we are given his peace, healing, innocence, and righteousness, but that's only because he's willing to take on himself our griefs, sorrows, transgressions, wanderings, and iniquity. There's an irony here in, in chapter 53. We, we thought him stricken by God. And what's truly astonishing is he was. But he was stricken by God on our behalf. He died for us. 
And why did he do it? Why did he do it? Because, verse 10, we are his. We are his offspring. Even though we're wayward, we are still his sheep. Now, finally, there's an astonishing vindication. The servant is is vindicated. There's a reversal. It's not just all humiliation. There's victory, too. In verse 11, he's praised for acting wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Those who despise and reject him don't have the last word. Though, uh, verse 12, he poured out his soul to death. Nevertheless, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. God's suffering servant shall be victorious. He shall be vindicated. Though the Lord crushes him, verse 10, and puts him to grief, nevertheless, again in verse 10, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And in the fullness of time, to use Paul's expression in Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1, the Lord Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and increased, Luke tells us, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew up, in Isaiah's language, like a young plant. And he came, as Jesus himself says in Mark 10, 45, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And people struggle to believe, some people struggle to believe the message, that God's substitute for sin had arrived. And John 12 and Romans 10 quote Isaiah on this very point. And what was the message, the good news of Jesus? Well, in the language of Isaiah 53, Jesus bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. And he was beaten, but we are healed. So let's be clear. We bring our grief, sorrows, transgressions, wandering, and iniquity to Jesus, and we are given his peace, his healing, his innocence, and his righteousness. He was pierced for our transgressions. And don't forget that Isaiah clearly talks about a great reversal, about the vindication, the victory of Jesus, the suffering servant. And we know that Jesus was vindicated at the resurrection, and he will be ultimately vindicated at the end of history. When around the throne of God, a song will rise up, and thousands upon thousands will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy are you, O Lamb of God, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, in our closing moments, let's consider just very briefly how we can respond 
to Isaiah 53. I've tried to uh, give you catchy headings for the last part here. I call it the light of the cross, the way of the cross, and the love of the cross. The light of the cross, the way of the cross, and the love of the cross. So first, by the light of the cross, we should see that our sin is horrendous. Our wandering is not casual. It's a capital offense. Think of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Your unrighteous anger is murder. Your lust is adultery. We rarely call sin by its proper name. Bearing false witness is called gossip. Or even worse, it's called sharing a prayer request. Sloth is called relaxation. But our sin is horrendous. In the face of the cross, we see sin for what it is. We see our wanderings by the light of their consequences. The death of God's innocent servant, our Lord Jesus. So that's the the first point of application. Secondly, we must follow the way of the cross. The way of the cross. And in a passage I hope we'll consider next week, the Apostle Peter appeals to Isaiah 53 when he encourages Christians to follow the example of Jesus by patiently enduring suffering. We as Christians ought to endure suffering patiently because we have a Savior who set the example of suffering now, glory later. That's the second point. Finally, the love of the cross. Let us rest in the love of the cross. The victorious Lord Jesus loves you. Hebrews 12.2 says that he gladly, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and, the verse continues, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You are greatly loved by the Lord of all. Jesus loves you, and he loves you with an effectual love. That is, he loves you with a love that does real work. If you think of uh, Isaiah 53, verse 11, by the servant's knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So God's love for you in Jesus is not wishful thinking. It isn't just an emotional response to your condition. He doesn't look at your wandering and say, oh, pity so-and-so. Sorry about that. Wish I could help. On the contrary, our Lord Jesus loves us. And so he went and got us. He saw that we were lost and he came and rescued us. In Luke chapter 15, the religious leaders of the day noticed they were grumbling against Jesus because he was associating with tax collectors and they were just at least as despised then as they are today. Sorry if you're visiting and you're a tax collector. But, uh, the, you know, he's, he's, he's with tax collectors and sinners. What's he doing? Well, Jesus responds to their grumbling by asking them a question and telling them a story. What men of you, Jesus says in Luke 15, having a hundred sheep, 
if he's, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, has come and found us. And that's the message of Luke 15. But Isaiah 53 reminds us that when our shepherd came to rescue us, he did so at no small cost to himself. He brought us gently and lovingly into our father's good green pastures. But to do so, he had to go out into the cold and barren wilderness. So we were rescued, but he suffered. And that's how much Jesus loves you. In closing, I'm going to read a uh, once famous hymn. It's uh, Ira Sankey. He was the uh, traveling companion of D.L. Moody. Moody was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. And uh, Sankey set to music the words of a poem. It's by Elizabeth Clefane. And it's based on the parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15. But the words of this poem are, and then, you know, a hymn, are uh, touching in their poignancy because the poem incorporates into the parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15 the insight into Isaiah 53 that if the shepherd wants to go and save his sheep, he is going to have to die for them. So as I conclude, rest your mind, perhaps even close your eyes, and listen to the words of this once famous hymn. And I will try to read it without crying, honestly. They're great sentimentalists, these 19th century poets. The 99. There were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. And one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here... Thy ninety and nine, are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark the night that the Lord passed through. Ere he found his sheep that was lost, out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless and ready to die. Sick and helpless and ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for one that had gone astray, ere the shepherd 
could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They are pierced tonight by many a thorn. They are pierced tonight by many a thorn. And all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep, there rose a cry from the gates of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Amen.